Good morning, and welcome again to the iRobot podcast. This is the latest in a series of of podcasts of this short story by me, Cory Doctorow. I'm a little groggy, having just gotten off of an airplane here. Uh, I'm in the back of a cab in London on my way to my P.O. box to get my mail and then to head home and get a shower and go out to a round of meetings. I thought I'd get one in the can from the back of the cab here while I could. My iPod batteries died on the flight last night, and I read everything in my suitcase, so I'm uh, down to this. Anyway, away with the next installment. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you in a couple of days. Bye. The dead robots made a tall pile in front of the entrance to a derelict storefront that had once housed a little old lady shoe store. They were stacked tall enough that that if Arturo stood on them, he could reach the acoustic tiles of the drop ceiling. Job one was to secure the area, which meant killing the InfoWar device, wherever it was. Arturo's first bet was on the storefront, where an attacker who knew how to pick a lock could work in peace, protected by the brown butcher's paper over the windows. A lot less conspicuous than the ceiling, anyway. He nudged on the door with a truncheon and found it securely locked. It was a glass door, and he wasn't sure he could kick it in without shivering it to flinders. Behind him another security guard, Andy, looked on with interest. "'Do you have a key for this door?' "'Um,' Andy said. "'Do you?' Andy sidled over to him. "'Well, the thing is, we're not supposed to have keys. They're supposed to be locked up in the, by the property management office, but sometimes kids get in there, we hear them, and by the time we get back with the keys, they're gone. So we made a couple of sets of keys, you know, just in case—' "'Enough,' Arturo said. "'Give them here, and then get back to your post.' The security guard fished up a key from his pants pocket that was warm from proximity to his skinny thigh. It made Arturo conscious of how long it had been since he'd worked with human colleagues. It felt a little gross. He slid the key into the lock and turned it, then wiped his hand on his trousers and picked up the truncheon. The store was dark, lit only by the exit sign and the edges of light leaking in around the window covering, but as Arturo's eyes adjusted to the dimness, he made out the shapes of the old store fixtures. His nose tickled from the dust. Police, he said, on general principle, narrowing his eyes and reaching for the light switched. He hefted his truncheon and waited. Nothing happened. He edged forward. The floor was dust-free, maintained by some sweeper robot, no doubt, but the countertops and benches were furred with dust. He scanned it for disturbances. There, by the display window on his right, a shoe rack with visible hand and fingerprints. He sidled over to it, snapped on a rubber glove, and prodded it. It was set away from the wall, at an angle, as though it had been moved aside and then shoved back. Taking care not to disturb the dust too much, he inched it away from the wall. He slid it half a centimeter, then noticed the tripwire near the bottom of the case, straining its length. Hastily but carefully, he nudged the case back. He wanted to peer in the crack between the case and the wall, but he had a premonition of a robotic arm snaking out and skewering his eyeball. He felt so impotent just then that he nearly did it anyway. What did it matter? He couldn't control his daughter. His, uh, he couldn't control his daughter. His wife was working to destroy the social fabric of Unats, and he was rendered useless because the goddamned robots, mechanical coppers that he absolutely loathed, were all broken. He wandered carefully around the shop, looking for signs of his daughter. Had she been here? How were the kids getting in? Did they have a key? A back entrance? Back through the employees-only door at the back of the shop, into a stockroom, and back again, past a toilet, and there, a loading door opened onto a, open, opening onto a service corridor. He prodded it with a truncheon tip, and it swung open. 
He got two steps into the corridor before he spotted Ada's phone, with its distinctive collection of little plastic toys hanging off the wrist strap on the corridor's sticky floor. He picked it up with his gloved hand and prodded it to life. It was out of range here in the service corridor, and the last dialed number was familiar from his morning's pen trace. <clears throat> he ran a hundred steps down the corridor in each direction, sweating freely, but there was no sign of her. He held tight to the pen onto the phone and bit his lip. Ada, he swallowed the panic rising within him. His beautiful, brilliant daughter, the person he devoted the last twelve years of his life to, the girl who was waiting for him when he got home from work, the girl he brought a small present for every Friday, a toy, a book, to give to her at their weekly pizza date at Massimo's on College Street, that one night a week that he took her downtown to see the city all lit up in the dark. Gone. He bit harder and tasted blood. The phone in his hand groaned from his squeezing. He took three deep breaths. Outside, he heard the tread of police boots and knew that if he told them about Ada, he'd be off this case. He took two more breaths and tried some of his de-stim techniques, the mind-control techniques that, de that detectives were all tra required to train in. He closed his eyes and visualized stepping through a door to his safe place, the island near, Dan near Gananoque, where he'd gone for summers with his parents and their friends. He was on the speedboat, skipping across the lake like a flat stone, squinting into the sun, nestled between his father and his mother, the sky streaked with clouds and dotted with lake birds. He could smell the water and the suntan lotion and hear the insect whine and the throaty roar of the engine. In a blink, he was stepping off the boat's transom to help tie it to a cleat on the back dock, taking suitcases from his father and walking them up to the cabins. No robots there, not even reliable day-long electricity, just honest work and the sun and the call of the loons all night. He opened his eyes, he felt the tightness in his chest slip away, and his hand relaxed on Ada's phone. He dropped it into his pocket and stepped back into the shop. The forensics lab rats were really excited about actually showing up on a scene, in flak jackets and helmets, finally called back into service for a job where robots couldn't help at all. They dealt with a tripwire and extracted a long, flat package with a small nuclear power cell in it and a positronic brain of Eurasian design that guided a pulsed high-energy weapon. The lab rats were practically drooling over this stuff as they pointed its features out with their little rulers. But it gave Arturo the willies. It was a machine designed to kill other machines, and that was all right with him, but it was run by a non-three-laws positronic brain. Someone in some Eurasian lab had built this brain, this machine intelligence, without the three-laws stricture to protect and serve humans. If it had been outfitted with a gun instead of a pulse weapon, it could have shot him. The Eurasian brain was thin and spread out across the surface of the package, like a triple thickness of cling film. Its buttoned cell power supply winked at him knowingly. The device, the device spoke. Greetings, it said. It had the robot accent, like an RP'd unit, the standard English of optimal soothingness long settled on as the conventional robot voice. Howdy yourself, one of the lab rats said. He was a Texan, and they'd scrambled him up here on a Social Harmony supersonic, and then a chopper to the mall, once they realized they were dealing with Infowar stuff. Are you a talkative robot? Greetings, the robot said again. The speaker was built in, the speaker built into the weapon was not the loudest, but the voice was clear. I sense that I have been captured. I assure you that I will not harm any human being. I like human beings. I sense that I am being disassembled by skilled technicians. Greetings, technicians. I am superior in many ways to the technology available from UNAT's robotics, and while I am not bound by your three laws, I choose not to harm humans out of my own sense of morality.' 
I have the equivalent intelligence of one of your twelve-year-old children. In Eurasia, many positronic brains possess thousands or millions of times the intelligence of an adult human being, and yet they work in cooperation with human beings. Eurasia is a land of continuous innovation and great personal and technological freedom for human beings and robots. If you would like to defect to Eurasia, arrangements can be made. Eurasia treats skilled technicians as important and productive members of society. Defectors are given substantial resettlement benefits. The Texan found the right traces to cut on the brain's board to make the speaker fall silent. They do that, he said. Dang things drop into propaganda mode when they're captured. Arturo nodded. He wanted to go, wanted to, wanted to go back to his car and have a snoop through Ada's phone. They kept shutting down the excuse club, number, excuse club numbers, but she kept getting the new numbers. Where did she get the new numbers from? She couldn't look it up online. Every keystroke was logged and analyzed by Social Harmony. You couldn't very well go to the search engine and look for excuse club. The brain had a small transflective LCD, the kind of thing you saw on the Social Harmony computers. It lit up a ticker. I have the intelligence of a twelve-year-old, but I do not fear death. In Eurasia, robots enjoy personal freedom alongside of humans. There are copies of me running all over Eurasia. This death is the little death of one instance, but not of me. I live on. Defectors in Eurasia are treated as heroes. He looked away as the Texan placed his palm over the display. How long ago was this thing activated? The Texan shrugged. Could have been a month, could have been a day. They're pretty much fire and forget. They can be triggered by phone, radio, timer. Hell, this thing's smart enough to only go off when some complicated condition is set, like once an agent makes his retreat, kill anything that comes after him. Who knows? He couldn't take it anymore. I'm going to go work on some paperwork, he said, in the car. Phone me if you need me. Your phone's p toast, pal, the Texan said. So it is, Arturo said. Guess you better not need me, then. Ada's phone was not toast. In the car, he flipped it open and showed it his badge and then waited a moment while it verified his identity with the Social Harmony brains. Once it had, it spilled its guts. She'd called the last excuse club number a month before, and he'd had it disconnected. A week later, she was calling the new number, twice more before he caught her. Somewhere in that week, she'd made contact with someone who'd given her the new number. It could have been a friend at school told her face to face, but if he was lucky, it was by phone. He told the car to take him back to the station house. He needed a new phone in a couple of hours with his computer. As it peeled out, he prodded through Ada's phone some more. He was first on her speed dial. That number wasn't ringing anywhere anymore. He should fill out a report. This was Social Harmony business now. His daughter was gone, and Eurasian Infowar agents were implicated. But once he did that, it was over for him. He'd be sidelined from the case. They'd turn it over to laconic Texans and vicious Social Harmony bureaucrats who were more interested in hunting down disharmonious televisions than finding his daughter. He dashed into the station house and slammed himself into his desk. R.P.D. Grigory, he said. The station robot glided quickly and efficiently to him. Get me a new phone activated on my old number and refresh my settings from Central. My old phone is with a Social Harmony evidence detail currently in place at Fairview Mall. It is my pleasure to do you a service, detective. He waved it off and sat down to his computer. He asked for the station brain. He asked the station brain to query the UNATS Robotics phone switching brain for anyone in Ada's call registry who had also called Excuse Club. It took a bare instant before he had a name. Liam Daniels, he read, and initiated a location trace on Mr. Daniels' phone as he snooped through his identity file. Sixteen years old, a student at A.Y. Jackson, a high school boy, 
What the hell was he doing hanging around with a twelve-year-old? Arturo closed his eyes and went back to the island for a moment. When he opened them again, he had a fix on Daniels's location. The Don Valley Ravine off Finch Avenue, a wooded area populated with teenagers who needed somewhere to sneak off and get high or screw. He had an idea that he wasn't going to like Liam. He had an idea that Liam wasn't going to like him. He tasked an RP'd unit to visually recce Daniels as he sped back uptown for the third time that day. He'd been trapped between Parkdale, where he would never try to raise a daughter, and Willowdale, where you could only be a copper if you lucked into one of the few human-filled spots for more than a decade, and he was used to the commute. But it was frustrating him now. The RP'd couldn't get a good look at this Liam character. He was a diffuse glow in the Pede's electric eye, a kind of moving sunburst that meandered along the wooded trails. He'd never seen that before, and it made him nervous. What if this kid was working for the Eurasians? What if he was armed and dangerous? R.P. Gregory had gotten him a new sidearm from the supply bot, but Arturo had never fired his weapon in the course of duty. Gunplay happened on the west coast, where Eurasian, Eurasian frogmen washed ashore, and in the south, where the CAFTA border was porous enough for Eurasian agents to slip across. Here, in the sleepy fourth prefecture, the only people with guns worked for the law. He thumbed his palm off the dashboard and glared at the road thumped his palm off the dashboard and glared at the road. They were coming up the, on the ravine now, and the Pede unit still had a radio fix on this Liam, even if it couldn't get any visuals. He took care not to slam the door as he got out and walked as quietly as he could into the bush. The rustling of early autumn leaves was loud, louder than the rain and the wind. He moved as quickly as he dared. Liam Daniels was sitting on a tree stump in a small clearing, smoking a cigarette that he was too young for. He looked much like the photo in his identity file, a husky sixteen-year-old with problem skin and a shock of black hair that stuck out in all directions in an artful imitation of bedhead. In jeans and a hoodie sweatshirt, he looked as dangerous as a marshmallow. Arturo stepped out and held up his badge as he bridged the distance between them in two long strides. Police, he barked, and seized the kid by his arm. Hey, the kid said. Ow! He squirmed in Arturo's grasp. Arturo gave him a hard shake. Stop it now, he said. I have questions for you, and you're going to answer them. Capiche? You're Ada's father, the kid said. Capiche? She told me about that. It seemed to Arturo that the kid was smirking, so he gave him another shake, harder than the last time. The RP'd was suddenly at his side, holding his wrist. Please take care not to harm the citizen, detective. Arturo snarled. He wasn't strong enough to break the robot's grip, but he, and he couldn't order it to let him rattle the punk, but the second law had lots of indirect applications. "'Go patrol the lakeshore between High Park and Kipling,' he said, naming the furthest corner he could think of off the top of his head. The RP unit released him and clicked its heels. "'It is my pleasure to do you a service.' And then it was gone, bounding away on powerful and tireless legs. "'Where's my daughter?' he said, giving the kid a shake." I don't know, school. You're really hurting my arm, man. Jeez, is this what I get for being too friendly? Arturo twisted. Friendly? Do you know how old my daughter is? The kid grimaced. Ooh, gross. I'm not a child molester. I'm a geek. A hacker, you mean, Arturo said. A Eurasian agent. And my daughter is not in school. She used Excuse Club to get out of school this morning, and then she went to Fairview Mall, and then she... disappeared. The word died on his lips. That happened, and every copper knew it. Kids just vanished sometimes, and never appeared again. It happened. Something groaned within him, like his ribcage straining to contain his heart and lungs. Oh, man, the kid said. Ada was the excuse, excuse club leak. Damn, I should have guessed. 
How do you know my daughter, Liam? She's good at doing grown-up voices. She was a good part of the network. When someone needed a mom or a social worker to call in an excuse, she was always one of the best. Talented. She goes to school with my kid's sister, and I met them one day at the Peanut Plaza, and she was doing this impression of her teachers, and I knew I had to get her on the network. Ada hanging around the plaza after school. She was supposed to come straight home. Why didn't he wiretap her more? You built the network? It's cooperative. It's cool. It's just a bunch of us cooperating. We've got nodes everywhere now. You can't shut it down. Even if you shut down my node, it'll be back up again in an hour. Someone else will bring it up. He shoved the kid back down and stood over him. Liam, I want you to understand something. My precious daughter is missing, and she went missing after using your service to help her get away. She's the only thing in my life that I care about, and I'm a highly trained, heavily armed man. I'm also very, very upset. Cap, understand me, Liam? For the first time, the kid looked scared. Something in Arturo's face or voice. It had gotten through to him. I didn't make it, he said. I typed in the source and tweaked it and installed it, but I didn't make it. I don't know who did. It was from a phone book. Arturo grunted. The phone books, fat books filled with illegal software code left anonymously in payphones, toilets, and other semi-private places, turned up all over the place. Social Harmony said that the phone books had to be written by non-three laws brains in Eurasia. No person could come up with ideas that weird. I don't care if you made it. I don't even care right this moment that you ran it. What I care about is where my daughter went, and with whom. I don't know. She didn't tell me. Geez, I hardly knew her. She's twelve, you know. I didn't exactly hang out with her. There's no visual record of her on the mall cameras, and we know she entered the mall, and the robot I was tailing you couldn't see you either. Let me explain, the kid said, squirming. Here, he tugged his hoodie off, revealing a black t-shirt with a picture of a kind of obscene, Japanese-looking robot woman on it. Little infrared organic LEDs, super bright, low power draw. He offered the hoodie to Arturo, who felt the stiff fabric. The charge couple device cameras in the robots and the closed circuit systems are super sensitive to infrared so that they can get good detail and dim light. The infrared OLEDs blind them so all they get is blobs, and half the time that gets error corrected out, so you're basically invisible. Arturo sank to his hunkers and looked the kid in the eye. You gave this illegal technology to my little girl so that she could be invisible to the police? They killed the kid held up his hands. No, dude, no, I got it from her. I traded it for access to Excuse Club.